1: The other, though, had no such sympathies. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. it. Together, they joined forces to highlight the good, the bad, and the truly bizarre. This is See You Next Week in Space.
0: Five, four, three, two, one, happy, happy new year. year!
1: Woohoo!
0: Yeah. Thank God. It's finally here! <laughs> 2020 is over!
1: Oh my gosh. Oh. I wish 2020 would like weave all of its baggage in 2020 as well, but I think unfortunately <laughs> that's not how it works. It's going to
0: be your traditional New Year's resolution, which is 2021 is going to say to itself, now last year, things got a little bit out of control. This year, I'm going to come into the year. I'm going to be like taking care of myself, going to the gym, all this great stuff. It's going to start out (laughs) like that. Right. It's going to start out like that, thinking everything's great. But I fear that by, like, February 7th...
1: Whoa, that's specific. (laughs) Things
0: might already be returning back to whatever, quote-unquote, normal is. Um, But, nonetheless... Uh, today is, let's see, what is today? When will this be airing? This is going to be airing on New Year's Day 2021! Um, and we've worked real hard to get to January 1st, 2021. Um, hello everyone, I'm Sarah, and of course I'm here with my sister and co-host Amy, and we have all made it to the new year. And um, though we are not actually recording this on New Year's Day because we're always a little bit ahead, I'm just going to like predict for myself and maybe some of our listeners, you might be feeling a bit rough today. Uh, you might have overindulged last night. And maybe even more than would be normally the case on a New Year's Eve celebration because Because you were just sitting
1: on your couch by yourself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And also because 2020 was about to be over and you really needed to kind of like work through that. You needed to send that bitch
1: out the door.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So if you are not feeling great today, I empathize with you and probably will find myself in a similar situation. Um, (laughs) And all we can hope is for uh, then kind of like a lot of fluids and things getting better (laughs) <laughs> uh in the in the remainder of the year which will be i would say 364 that. days to get to better so that's pretty good um but so there's a reason we're talking about new year's eve not only because this comes out on new year's day but amy what are we talking about this week
1: so we're talking about a movie that I literally had never heard of, was never on my radar, never knew anything about. Um it is a movie from twenty thirteen called Snow Piercer. And right. yeah, that's pretty much all I know about it. I mean, I read some stuff about it, but um it's I can't remember the director's name off the top of my head, and I know it's written down here, but um yeah it it's a downer.
0: <laughs> it's a downer, but it is also one of the few science fiction movies that at least tangentially relates to New Year's Eve, which yeah. is why we chose this one. Or well, I guess technically I chose it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I will say, I do. I had always like remembered. The name of this movie, I remembered when it came out, it making um, a bit of a splash. Really? Uh, yeah, because this is Bong Joon-ho, so that's okay, the name okay. of the director. Um This is, I think, one of his first big American yeah. movies. I'm pretty sure I read um, that
1: because it said that it was 85% in English, so I do think it's right. his first English language. Film,
0: yeah, yeah, and um, so and he is the director who has gone on uh, more recently to do *Parasite*, which also what received I quite a bit I'm... of acclaim. Um, so he's a South Korean director, um, and he writes occasionally too. Um, so this was his like big kind of crossover moment into the English language market, um, and. As kind of like... It seems like he likes to explore themes related... I mean, Parasite is like this too, although I haven't actually seen it yet, which is like kind of class difference. um, The grotesquerie of economic inequality. Um, And he also, unsurprisingly, does a lot of like action type stuff. Um, So this movie incorporates all all of of that. that. Yeah. Um... And at like there aren't a lot of special effects, I don't I wouldn't say, but I think the ones that are here are quite well done. And that often um kind of gets a movie noticed even when it's not the story is not particularly good, which I think this story is pretty good if it's depressing.
1: Pretty, yeah. It's definitely interesting. Um, it's definitely something I don't feel like I've ever seen. Not that I'm—I'm I'm not a big sci-fi person, obviously, but I've never heard of this type of story, or uh, you know, it didn't seem like it was super derivative of anything.
0: Um, I mean, it? I slightly—I slightly disagree oh. in in the sense that this is like a dystopian vision where the rich continue to be rich and the poor. Oh, I don't mean that um, particular
1: part, but I mean like the actual world we're living in where it's like an ice oh, age and sure. all the i just meant that and on that level
0: sure yeah um so i also before we talk about the cast i just thought i should mention um because i didn't realize this when i decided on doing this for this week um this is actually this year was turned into a tv series um also called snow piercer That seems to be on TNT, Um, so not even a super premium uh, kind of uh, station. I don't know. Do we call things stations anymore?
1: I don't know. All I know about TNT is their tagline, which is characters welcome.
0: (laughs) Isn't that USA?
1: Oh, shoot. Now I don't know.
0: (laughs) But aren't those the same channel? I, I
1: feel like USA and TNT are the same channel.
0: Yes. It's like all of but that's the thing, is like are channels even a thing anymore? That's a great know. question.
1: Well they're um I mean they're not well, they are a thing, but I feel like we call them networks because no one actually watches them on a channel anymore. I don't know. I actually don't know. That's a good question.
0: Um,
1: but so it's made by TNT Studios, let's say.
0: Um and it and it I think maybe has about ten episodes that were airing starting in May of this year, but I, like, completely missed that. Um, and I feel like this story does lend itself to becoming a show because, like, while the story holds together really nicely as a kind of just discrete unit, um, it's clear that there's, like, a lot of interesting backstory that could be covered in a show. Um and and so I think that's what the show is about, is kind of going further back from this story to kind of talk more about the origins of this whole train situation and um, these previous revolts that are also alluded to in this story. I think that's what the show is probably about. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the cast. So... Um, Bong joon and I should start by saying, Bong Joon-ho, uh, as I said, uh, is a South Korean director. He, um, by 2013, or really they were probably shooting this in 2012, um, he had made quite a lot of really uh, popular and critically acclaimed movies in South Korea. Um, and so he'd gotten on the radar for a lot of people. Um, and so this kind of foray into the English language market was not like, oh, we're gonna let you like try something, but it's gonna be like low budget, no maybe one important actor and that's what you get. This is like a full star studded, like real, um I don't know, like a real support of this entrance into the English language market. So, And that is evidenced by the type of cast that we see in this movie. So first and foremost, um, I I guess I would say that Curtis is the protagonist of this story. Um, And that's played by Chris Evans, who was 32 when this movie came out. Um, And he is almost exactly my age because he was born um June 1981. Wow. Um, I'm te- I'm technically his senior mm-hmm. <laughs> by 10 days. Yep. Um but also he is from Boston, so he's a Massachusetts guy. Cute. Um which I think I've known before because remember a couple months ago I think ago, he wears a
1: Bo- a Red Sox hat a lot when he's like
0: for around. Sure. Um but what I was going to say is do you remember when everyone was deciding they hated Chris Pratt? <laughs> like a couple months ago?
1: I sort of do, but I didn't really follow why. It's because it turns out he's a real MAGA. Oh, no. Uh,
0: like Christian evangelical. Oh, yeah, he sucks. Oh, no. Um, oh, I wish you didn't tell me that.
1: I think that's why I stayed out of it, because I didn't want to yeah. know. Oh, that's the problem. Yeah, so
0: he sucks, and in <sighs> this battle... Uh, Chris Evans was then held up as like, oh, Chris Pratt has has sucks, and in fact, it turns out he always has.
1: But Damn Chris it. Evans is great. <laughs> oh really? Oh, that's yeah. that's funny, but also now I'm bummed.
0: Yeah. Well, we don't have to dwell on that, and in fact, we can't. I think we should. Go I think
1: on. we should talk about it. I'm sad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. So he. I didn't know this. Apparently, he has a brother who I presume is a bit younger, who also does some acting. Um, and because he's from... And I'm 10 days the, older than him. Maybe. I'm kidding. I don't know. <laughs> um, and then also this, we got to say, because some of our family members even went to this high school. Chris Evans attended the Lincoln Sudbury High School. What, what?
1: Shout out Lincoln, Lincoln Sudbury. S-
0: Lincoln Sudbury Bull Weevils or whatever your name is. We have no idea. (laughs) I don't know what your mascot is. Um, But so probably unsurprisingly because Chris Evans is a very handsome in a very kind of traditional handsome man way. uh, He started out with a lot of like rom-com teen movie kind of roles. um, And then became taken a bit more seriously when he became um, Captain America, uh, which is his main thing. And this, so Captain America first movie comes out in twenty eleven. So this is a it's couple. It's the Lincoln Sudbury.
1: Just in case you're curious, it's the Lincoln Sudbury Warriors.
0: Okay, cool. I'm glad it wasn't offensive in any way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then. Since 2011, kind of the vast majority of what Chris Evans has done is related to being Captain America. Like, most of his stuff is that. Um, But this is one of the departures from that career. The other guy who I'm not, and I'm not sure if he was a protagonist per se, but he's certainly one of the more important characters in the story, is one called Namgung Minsoo. Um, who they just refer to as Nam uh, in the movie. Um, and that's played by an actor named Song Kang-ho, who was 46 at the time of release. Uh, and as you've perhaps deduced, uh, he is a South Korean actor. Um, and in fact, has worked with Bong Joon-ho a bunch. Oh, interesting. Um, this is actually his third movie like, this one, Snowpiercer is the third movie he's done with Bong Joon-ho. Oh. Um And it seems like uh, Song Kang-ho did, got, like, a reputation um, for doing, kind of, like, a being a bit of a Jackie Chan. Um, he did a lot of, a lot of his early roles look to be, like, in action movies. Um, and he plays, like, gangsters and stuff. Does a lot of his own stunt work. Um, so that's he like he brings quite a gravitas like, like not that this movie needs more gravitas, but yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, he brings a certain kind of like grizzled element uh to the story. Yeah. Um, I'm really
1: sorry. I just like I'm I got I got like caught up in the Lincoln Sudbury of it all. and oh boy, I just looked up the high school and they're known for their drama department. Huh. And stuff like that. And it said Carly Evans like directed something in it and I was like, Carly Evans, I wonder if that's, that's his it. sister. It is. Yeah. So that's so funny. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. He has two. And so his he mom has is brother. also a director, an artistic director at Concord Youth Theater. Anyway, I just it's okay. cute.
0: Yeah. Uh there are definitely a theater family. Yeah. He has um If I remember his bio on IMDB correctly, he's got this brother and then two additional sisters. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, so now we know these are the two guys that the story kind of focuses mostly around. Yeah. Um, the third person who's important to the story, who we actually don't see for most of the movie is a character named Wilford, who is um, played by Ed Harris, who was sixty three at the time of release. Um, and you probably know him from stepmom. like Apollo 13, oh. stepmom, <laughs> uh, definitely stepmom. Definitely stepmom. Uh, that's,
1: that's what I watched I don't watch <laughs> things that have spaceships in them, but definitely. It's true. I guess. Yeah. I, so stepmom.
0: <laughs> yeah. Know um, I'm from. and so most people know who he is. Um, he does seem to play a lot of stuff where he's like the clean cut a good guy sort of role, which makes sense because um, he looks like he would be a clean cut good guy. And that's probably because, um, so he grew up in like the New York area. And in fact, um, at when he first started, or no, sorry, he grew, he was born in Oklahoma and then ended up going to Columbia University in New York and playing football for them. So he is like originally, thing. you know, like a jock. Huh. sort of person. Um, Does Columbia have a then, good football
1: team, though? Because I don't picture them as being... Anyway, whatever.
0: Well, when he went, maybe... Like, I don't
1: know. Totally I don't know. know. It's all but, right. It's all right.
0: Um, but the point is, is in Columbia, which actually is in, like, Harlem, right? Isn't it? Because it's, like, way up there. Yeah, it's upper
1: Manhattan. It's, um, like, 116th yeah. Street.
0: So... While there, he actually gets interested in acting, mm. unsurprisingly, um, and as a result, decides to transfer to the University of Oklahoma's theater department.
1: That um, is interesting.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of a head scratcher because I'm like, but you, I mean, are in New York, yeah, like I mean, I, maybe
1: I feel like, why don't you transfer to like? Listen, I know NYU's not like just like transfer to NYU. Who cares? But if you're already at Columbia yeah that is that is an interesting move for sure
0: (laughs) yeah um but that's what he did and it clearly worked worked out for him (laughs) (laughs) and then the other thing that I think is uh nice about him is he has been married to the same woman since 1983 um and that is also an actor her name is Amy Madigan um and if you look her up you would probably recognize her like um, I looked her up and I was like, oh yeah, I've definitely seen that lady. I couldn't really tell you in what, but like she, she's not like just a no one. She, like she does in fact have her own career as well. So good for them. Um, The next person is a character named Gilliam, who is played by John Hurt, who is the oldest person in the cast and is kind of portrayed as probably one of the oldest people living on this train. Um and he so he was 73 at the time of release. Um and he's a British guy, so he has been in a lot of different British stuff over the years. Uh unsurprisingly, um but what I thought was maybe most of note for us is that he we've seen this guy before because he was in the original Alien. So we've seen this actor in in stuff when he was quite a bit younger than he is. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. And cleaner. Yeah. Cleaner and younger. I mean, I than think was everyone was
1: cleaner in something they've been in previously than they were in this movie cuz yes. they were dirty in this movie.
0: Yes. Um but in terms of like uh stuff that I think is relevant, he played um one of his last roles before he passed away in 2017 is he played the doctor in a couple of or in like I think three episodes of doctor who mm-hmm. um he also appeared in a movie that I hadn't thought about in years but I remember really liking at one time which is king ralph hmm. um did you ever see
1: that movie no I don't know what that is
0: oh my god it's hilarious it's from the 90s it features john goodman the premise is that something has happened to the royal family in England such that this
1: doofus that John from America Goodman has to be the king? Yes. Oh, I do sort of. <laughs> I, that's I. That's nuts. But like I, I have now like maybe like a weird little recollection of like I can picture like the um, poster for that or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. As I recall, it's a good poster. So, Because um, <laughs> it's probably I like mean, a big old
1: John Goodman sitting on a throne looking like a, <laughs> eating a hamburger or something.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Um, so he's clearly been in a lot of oh, that's very funny. good stuff.
1: <laughs> clearly, um, based on that one in particular.
0: Yeah. Um, and then this was one that I, I thought this was her, but then watching it uh, was like, could this really be her? Um, we have a character named Mason, who is played by the truly, like, chameleon-like Tilda Swinton, um, who was 53 when this movie came oh out. Oh my and god, that, like, wait, shocked- I'm so
1: sorry, I keep doing this now, but, like, I just, holy shit, I just googled, I had not heard of that, like, I had not heard of that movie, and I just googled the poster, and it is literally a picture of John Goodman Sitting on a throne with a hamburger in his goddamn hand. Yes. Well, we've already established that you're psychic, Amy. Come on. But I really didn't know that, and I just said that because that's like what I figured would be the poster for how a movie. you'd render
0: a doofus American. Yeah, exactly. Surprisingly becoming exactly, King and of he's got like
1: a Las <laughs> Vegas shirt on. Yeah, exactly. Oh man. Okay. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Tilda Swinton. What? I-
0: I thought you were surprised because Tilda Swinton was completely transformed no, that's what away her, from.
1: No, that's like her, her jam. Little, she loves to do that.
0: I know. Um, but in this case, like truly unrecognizable.
1: What? Um, She's more unrecognizable in uh, um, uh, the thing she did in Suspiria when she played that man.
0: Oh yeah, when she played the man, I forgot about that part. But You're yes,
1: like, but like because I think um, I do think that being unrecognizable and like really delving into like the looks of roles is like something she really enjoys. Yes. I get that vibe from yes, hers.
0: yes for sure. Um, I and I was also surprised that she was fifty three seven years ago.
1: Do you think she like did? You 60. think she was older or younger? Younger. Hmm. But she I feel like she always plays roles older than what like when you see her in real life she has a much uh younger vibe than yeah. her characters she plays.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Um but so part of I think why like she is like so anyway, m- the things I've discovered about her as a result of looking up a bit about her. She's also really smart. She graduated from Cambridge in 1983, Um, and pretty much from the start of her acting career, which basically, like, she was doing, you know, like, unsurprisingly, kind of, like, college drama stuff while she was at Cambridge, and then pretty much as soon as she graduated, she went into actually pursuing acting as a profession, and from the start, she was doing kind of gender-bending roles. Um, and also had this initially uh, kind of long-time working relationship uh, with a gay experimental director named Derek Jarman, starting in the 80s. Um, He died of AIDS in 1994, and she was very devastated by that. Um, And one of the kind of early examples of this kind of mixture uh of like men and woman but also kind of like disappearing into a role uh is a movie that she made in 1992 called orlando um which is based on a book by Sylvia plath or maybe short story Hmm. um but it's about this young noble who is in print in queen elizabeth's court in Mm -hmm. the 1600s or whatever and basically as Elizabeth is dying she commands this man never to age and then the story is that he never does Hmm. um so
1: like Peter Pan kind of
0: yes so the story carries Orlando from the early 1600s maybe not fully into The present but I can't remember I think it does actually Hmm. um and the only thing that happens so Orlando does not in fact age but there's some point like I want to say 200 years in where something happens and he like passes out and when he wakes up he's a woman
1: um oh it's kind of like that movie we did hmm what was that movie called I can't remember, but it was something where it was a time travel one. Do you remember? Oh,
0: uh, pre predestination. Yeah,
1: I wanted to say yeah, premonition. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, that, I guess that's right. That is very similar in Notion. Um, and so then it's about kind of like how how Orlando experiences being treated as a woman after hmm. living as a man. Hmm. Um, so this is a theme that kind of runs throughout her career. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and i am also curious because it doesn't say but one one of her upcoming things that she's listed on is um in in some new version of pinocchio
1: oh i wonder who she um, plays
0: i i know because i'm like oof is it a scary pinocchio
1: i could see her playing <laughs> like, pinocchio like i mean depending on what type I, of true yeah adaptation it was where if it was more um you know, avant-garde or something where it was like a grown-up sort of androgynous Pinocchio. I could see that.
0: And Pinocchio is actually a kind of creepy story. Very Um, much so.
1: The freaking doll comes to life.
0: Well, and then all the things that happen to it. Yeah, it is. It's actually
1: quite a dark one for like... Yeah. I mean, most fairy tales Um, have the actual dark aspect, but anyway.
0: So then, the final two characters we should mention because they're important to kind of the narrative um, is a character named Tanya, played by Octavia Spencer, who was 43 when this movie came out. Um, she actually was in a lot more stuff than I realized. Yeah,
1: she's been in a lot.
0: Um, she was in a lot, and like, so her first credit is in 1996, and then. It seems to be basically for about 10 or 15 years, she appears like very low profile stuff. Um, Lots of TV. um, And unsurprisingly, uh, because she's a black woman with a kind face, she's cast as a nurse like a million times. Um, And then starting around... Like twenty two thousand and eight ish to two thousand and nine, it looks like that's when she starts making a concerted effort to be in movies rather than on TV. Um, so by twenty eleven, she is in The Help, um, which, while I've never even seen the movie because I don't care to see movies of that nature, I've heard it's problematic, which sounds yeah.
1: Um, I don't. I think it was try- so- I think it was trying to do a thing. And I think the intentions were good, but you know, but it is like it is sort of a, a white savior story, and it is yeah. a um, you know from the lens of a white woman about the black right. experience. So those are, I think, right. the criticisms of that movie, as far as I know.
0: Right, but she does a very good job in it. Oh yeah, and that's I think like. As I say in this outline, that seems to be like the first She won role an Oscar for it, being, I think. Yeah, she's like way prominent as a result of that yeah. role. And then more recently, she was in Hidden Figures as kind of the main protagonist in that movie. Um so she has really once she kind of made the jump to film, she's seen kind of returns on that success pretty quickly, which is great. Yeah. I like her. Um yeah, and she, as unsurprisingly, like when I saw she was in this, I was like, oh, this movie's probably pretty good then. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> if
0: she's in it. <laughs> and I wasn't wrong. I um, recommend the movie then, Ma
1: if you like her as well. It's a horror movie, oh, but just Oh, that
0: yeah. I'm a little afraid of it, but yes, yeah, it's no, been I, on my list.
1: I, I I recommend it.
0: Um and then the final character is named Yona and that's played by another uh South Korean actor named Ah Ko who was 22 when this movie came out. Um, And it, like, I'm saying her name is ah ko I've seen it written and mentioned multiple different variations on that um, in IMDb. So it seem, and because it seems like mostly her credits are in South Korea, um, it basically, what I think this is, is that like English language stuff can't work out. Like what her name is—that's oh, um, sad—or like, well, more like how is how to take a Korean word and name and and turn that into English? Yeah, it seems to be the problem. Got right? it. Um, so, but uh, again, both um, Song Kang Ho and Ko to a South Korean audience would have been super recognizable. Yeah. Um, at this point, mm-hmm. uh, they were both pretty big stars. Um, so that is like kind of the core group of people that we need to know who they are yeah. to understand this movie. So now let's move on to talk about this true bummer. Of <laughs> it really is like a bummer of,
1: top to bottom, side to side. Like, Yeah. Is- and
0: it's like a I guess I would say it's a reflection on both Climate change mm-hmm.
1: and Classism. inequality. yeah.
0: Yeah. So those are the two main themes that will be explored throughout this. So just from that, we can prepare that this, like strap in, because this is going to be... We can prepare be... that this
1: isn't really any relief from 2020. <laughs> this is just more of the same. <laughs> no.
0: um, so let's begin with kind of the cold open and the credits. So what we start to see as the credits begin to roll, or rather what we were hearing stuff first, and um, what we're hearing is like a lot of kind of like radio clips or television clips, people's voices coming over. And what the voices are saying is that um, global warming has gotten really out of control And that there's this new solution that people have come up with, and it's called CW-7. And CW-7 is going to be launched into the atmosphere over Earth on the 1st of July, 2014, at 6 a.m. So, um, and... Basically, the point of this, we don't ever learn what CW7 is, but let's assume it's some sort of chemical compound, yes, Um, that's going to be launched into the atmosphere. And the point is that this is going to lower temperatures on Earth enough because what we're meant to... So this movie comes out in 2013. So we're supposed to understand that between... 2013 and July 1st 2014 temperatures have really become very bad and that this is like basically um kind of what's the word I'm looking for like it's not fake but it's like creating a solution without really fixing the problem
1: yeah I guess well it's like putting Um, like a ginormous band-aid or like some type like yeah
0: So then, so all of that is happening kind of over the actual credits, and we're just seeing names and stuff go by. And then the first kind of like actual shot we see is this very, very blue sky and these rockets going up into the sky with like huge ass chemtrails coming off the back of them. Um, And while that's happening, there's like some ominous music playing um, and so you're like, okay, well, here we go. This is not great. Um, and then we get the actual title of Snowpiercer comes out, mm-hmm. and then the real kind of like first shot of the movie that we see is like a complete Arctic wasteland. Um, and then we get. As per usual, a bunch of title cards telling us what is happening.
1: <laughs> they love a freaking title card in science fiction.
0: I really, it's true that I never noticed how prevalent this was in this genre. Until I started doing this podcast.
1: Yeah. And then I was like,
0: every fucking time they got to tell every us time. Because, the, because
1: Because you know why? Because the rest of it, because the, so much of science fiction is literal made up bullshit. Like they have to be like, listen, this is what we're doing here. And um I'm not defending it because like I just said, a lot of it is literal bullshit. But like, you know, it's the same way that romantic comedies have the same three acts, right? Or the same whatever, the same yeah, story sure, arc. Sure. This is just like this genre does it this way. It has to set you up into whatever fake world they've created.
0: <laughs> right. Well, I, yes, but I'm going to say it in a different way, which oh, is... Oh, really? Was my like, way
1: kind of critical?
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I mean to say is, is like... Many, and I think especially movies, uh, they have, like, a story that they want to tell that is usually not the setup story. They, like, want to talk about the world once we've gotten to the future. Yeah. Not, like, let's explain. How we got here. Right, because they're like, I don't want more than half my movie to be, like, covering the 35 years where we're, like, slowly building up to. Where we need to get to actually tell the story that I want to tell, right? So um so the title card is the way the workaround, yeah, I get, <laughs> to get that. but you get know out of that. you
1: know what would be interesting actually is for a bunch of every single science fiction movie that ever was to go back and do like a bunch of prequels. <laughs> like for this well, movie, they the, could go back and do a yeah. prequel back to twenty fourteen. And like all that happened up leading up to it, and then the day when, I guess maybe that's a little right. bit darker because then it's like, oh, then humanity died. But like,
0: right? Well, I would and, like to see it. In, and that's and that's what the show. That's why I'm saying oh, is it? So this, because they've got the show. I think that's what the show was covering. Oh, I, I like, kind of like that going back. Oh, interesting. Um, and it's also why various. Like, that's why when you have a f- successful science fiction movie, that's often why you can do more and more. Yeah. Um, because you've jumped so far ahead, then people are like, well, like, what's Let's between... Let's see what get- yeah. ...there and there. Um, so in this case, what we learn from the title cards is that CW7 went terribly wrong. This plan turned out not to be the solution um, that it was promised. In fact, it was like... It actually created an even worse econ- not economic environmental disaster mm-hmm. The entire earth is frozen. Let's see Do, oh yeah, 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 here's okay. so the first title card says, soon after dispersing CW7, the world froze, all life became extinct.
1: So like so they all fucked life, up like, like plants big time.
0: yeah, like plants, animals, every single type of organic life on earth. Um, Goes extinct and they go extinct because frozen.
1: (laughs) Idiots. I mean, and CW7 just reminds me of like WD-40. So it's like, (laughs) I just feel like it.
0: How serious could that have been?
1: They just put a little WD-40 on it.
0: Yeah. Um, Although if you put the whole world under WD-40, it probably wouldn't be great. No, I
1: think probably you'd have a pretty Um, catastrophic reaction as well.
0: Um, but then the set, then there's a second title card that explains, and this is a direct quote, the precious few who boarded the rattling arc. That's this train, the train, which I pre- presume is called snow Um, so it says the precious few who boarded the rattling ark are humanity's last survivors.
1: Now, so, so that have- means, wait, real quick. So that means that they were on this train when this when this went down, like on that day, because all of these people were traveling, question mark, or it was no. by design because they all thought that this was going to be fucked up.
0: No. So my impression, based on the movie, I have not seen the show, is that CW7 goes up into the air on the 1st of July, 2014. Chaos begins, let's say... 12 hours after that um and let's say things don't really start going bad like I would say they maybe have a couple weeks between when CW7 is launched into the atmosphere and when we're dealing with like complete arctic tundra of the world yeah because I would assume my impression Okay,
1: because yeah, that that makes sense because then I would assume also you know on the tv they might be like "Ooh, guys hey guess what like The scientists are saying, like, we fucked up big time and, like, we're all (laughs) donezo.
0: Right. Because so this, so, okay, so this is my feeling. The fancy train had already been built. Yeah. um, And the reason it had been built was just for fun. Yeah. Like, um, but then when this crisis strikes, Mm -hmm. people who already had bought tickets, let's say, for, like, its first trip. Yeah. Then they were like, this is the way I'm going to survive is getting on this train.
1: Interesting. Right. Um, It's
0: an interesting choice. it had already been set up. Yeah. To be self-sustaining and all this jazz. Okay. So they already had their tickets. They are like, well, now this is our lifeboat. So we're going on. Yeah. And then the people who are at the back, the tail sectioners, that's like the nod to poor humanity, yep. that these people are willing to give is like fine. We also have some room for some other jerks, so you can just pile on. But that's like pure chaos, right? In those final like days and hours, you think of that's like being, that's like
1: final people coming on, being like, please, please, please. Like they're not people right. who are like pre-planned, like hmm. right, mm-hmm. right,
0: like that. Once the realization of what is happening on Earth. Is out. Yeah. And then Wilford is like, okay, so we planned to have these rich people and we planned it was just going to be this luxurious, whatever the hell. Yeah. But now this is becoming the thing that's going to keep humanity surviving into forever. Yeah. So now we need slightly different supplies, right? So we can allow for more people to come on. Because it's not clear to me how big this train is or how many people are on it.
1: It's fucking big. We have to
0: assume. I think we have to assume that it's at least probably like what, three or four thousand people. Oh whoa. maybe in total.
1: I don't I know. I think so. I, I guess mean, I don't know. I mean it's a very big train, but I don't I I
0: or maybe I don't more know. like a thousand people.
1: That's I don't that's know. still a lot, but yeah, um, sure.
0: Yeah. So then we are brought in so then there's like a big shot of the train kind of whistling by us. And we go into the tail section, um, and the final title card tells us that it is 17 years after the launching of CW-7, so we are now in the year 2031. Um, And what we see is that there are soldiers coming into this truly decrepit and disgusting compartment at the back of the train, They're doing a bed check. They're having people line up so that they can count off kind of line by line how many people are back there. Because what we learn pretty quickly is that in this train of the future, everyone has to stay in their designated area of the train. Um, And so at the back, it's a very kind of Mad Max looking world. Everyone is dirty. Um, Everyone's wearing like raggedy clothes. And we get our first view of the protagonist, Curtis, who while this bed check is happening, he is not paying attention to like what is happening around him. He is very focused on the gates that are separating his compartment from other compartments in the train going forward. And so what we learn is that um, Curtis is in the process of planning some kind of like I would call it a prison break, but they're not in prison.
1: But it is. But it like, (laughs) I mean, it's reminiscent of prison life and not that I've been to prison, prison life or like it had the reminiscence of. You know, like labor camps or things like right. that where you're being held against your will. Right.
0: And that there are these bed checks and soldiers are doing them. So it, fe- but ultimately, what he wants to do, what we learned very early on, is that he is under the impression that he's getting kind of messages sent to him in the protein blocks that are these disgusting, like Ooh. gelatin things that they all eat. Yep.
1: Um, cause that's the he, only thing he, they he, get to eat, I think is what we're right. supposed to. Be, yeah.
0: Yes. They're, they're part of bed check is that then you're like given out these rations of protein block. Um, yeah, it does not look appealing, but what we learn is that Curtis keeps getting these weird little like capsules with messages inside his protein block. Um, and he is under the impression that they are from someone further up in the train who used to be a security guard for the train. So that's so he's like, This guy is like helping me, and we can then use this information to organize some kind of uprising. That's what he wants to do. Um, and he's and Curtis is planning this with his like older mentor Gilliam um and what they ultimate and Curtis in particular is really committed to the idea of getting to the very very front of the train the engine room to kill Wilford who's the train's creator um and this is also where Gilliam in particular is saying to Curtis that like just by virtue of you having this plan um, you're like a leader and a, another kind of running thread throughout this story is Curtis's discomfort about that idea. He doesn't really want to be a leader. He doesn't want to take on uh, that role. And Gilliam in particular is always kind of egging him on and saying, you have to, cause I'm going to die someday. And like, you're, you're going to take over. Um, because Gilliam is kind of like the spiritual leader of the people in the tale section um so various things are happening it's kind of unclear how much time is passing um but one of the things that happens is that this lady from the front of the train and we know she's from the front because she's actually got like clean clothes and has clean hair and like she comes into the back of the train and she's take she's got this tape measure and she's measuring all the kids and she selects Yeah, she selects two to come with her, Um, one of whom is um, Octavia Spencer's son. So her name in the movie, again, is Tanya. So Tanya's son gets taken along with another kid. And the dad of the other kid, who I looked up, this is actually another actor, but I didn't mention him because he's only kind of a little bit in the story. The character's name is Andrew. Andrew. And his son gets taken as well. And in frustration, Andrew takes his shoe off and throws it. um, Kind of like after the woman who's just taken his kid away. Um, And then, and I think it, oh, that's what it is. And so he's throwing it at this one woman. But it ends up hitting this other lady who is Mason, who is Tilda Swinton's character. Um, and so he gets punished for hitting, uh, Mason with his shoe. Um, and the punishment is horrendous, um, but what's kind of, to me, even almost worse than the punishment is the fact that, like, so the punishment is, is that, uh, Andrew gets his arm, like, forced out of a little tiny hole in the side of the train, and because, Uh, it's like, I don't know how cold it is out there, but basically everyone knows his arm is going to be frozen such that it will be falling off, right? Like, so he's getting his arm amputated for what he's done, um, which is already horrifying. Um, but then they say like, okay, so he's got to have his arm held outside of the train for seven minutes. And so then Mason is like, I need to give a speech for seven minutes, as part of this punishment um and the speech is truly terrifying um because she's talking about how uh the the trains kind of society depends on what she calls a preordained social order so everyone has to just remain where they are um and that this preordained order was determined by the tickets that people had when they boarded the train 17 years before. Um, she kind of talks about the engine as being eternal, being sacred. So she's very like, um, religious fundamentalist, but now the religion is about the train, um, and treating Wilfred Wilford as like a Jesus figure.
1: Yikes. I don't like that. Um,
0: No, it was very, her character is very upsetting in many ways. Yeah, it is. Um, So uh, she and the various soldiers who are with her ultimately leave. And then we see, again, it's unclear how much time is passing, but we see that Curtis is leading all of the tail sectioners in some kind of plan for some kind of dust up. So they're creating like this big ramrod out of barrels. Um, Curtis is collecting uh, something called Cronol, which is a drug that has emerged on the train. and what we learn is that it's actually uh, like you make Cronol out of certain waste that the tra- train produces. Um, yeah, but it's become this very, like desirable drug within the train. Uh, so he's getting that as well. We're not really sure why. And then Curtis also starts saying, like, I think that uh, the people in charge have run out of bullets because in this kind of kerfuffle with Andrew and his punishment, um, it seemed like the soldiers were reluctant to actually fire on them. Um, and so Curtis is like, I think they can't, I think they don't have any bullets anymore that they used them all up. Um, and so that will make this revolt that they're planning even more successful. Um, so that is indeed what then transpires. Again, it's not clear how much time passes, um, because like an alarm goes off And it seems like that. I don't know if they planned for this or if they were just like ready for when something unusual happened. Because then they've like, they're like kind of hiding uh, this ramrod that they built uh, amongst them and waiting until the soldiers kind of come close enough so that they can inflict the most damage. Um, And Curtis then directly walks up. To one of the soldiers and kind of like puts the gun right on his forehead and he's like, Go ahead and shoot. And the guy does, but then again, there's no bullet. So it's like, ah, we were right. And so then, like, true chaos breaks out. Um, and it seems like basically what they're trying to do is they're using this ramrod. And also it looks, the tail sectioners have created weapons for themselves. And so they're just going to, it's, I mean, the plan is very simple, I guess. They just want to get to the front of the train. Yeah, um, But there's some obstacles. <laughs> there are many obstacles as we'll see, but it does seem like Curtis's plan ultimately is um, maybe not very fully realized because all he wants to do is to get to the front to kill Wilford. And he, he doesn't really think about like what would happen after that. Yeah. You know, like we're still going to have to be on this train, presumably someone else will have to then be in charge. Yeah. Um, And if being in charge is the problem, then what are we doing? You know, so this is, this is where we're going to start seeing things start to disintegrate. I suppose over the course of this story. So when, the, so ultimately, though, in this case, the tail sectioners are successful. And I would say it's mostly because there are just so many more of them than there are of soldiers and their original push yeah. forward. Yeah. Um, where they end up next is what I think they're referring to as the prison mm-hmm. car. Mm-hmm. And what we see is that in this future, if you do something that is against the rules... Um, but maybe because you're not a tail sectioner, you're not going to get one of your limbs taken off. You're just going to be put into stasis in this weird morgue looking thing. (laughs) Um, Hmm. because they like pull Nam out of a drawer.
1: Yeah. (laughs)
0: And like wake him up.
1: Yeah, that was weird.
0: So, so this is the person that Curtis thinks has been communicating with him mm. and so, or no no sorry curtis thinks that there is someone up toward the front who works in the security kind of element of the train yeah. who has let him know that this guy nam is in the prison car oh. and that nam has the technical knowledge that they need to open the remaining gates between all of the different compartments okay so that's why they need to stop and get this guy Um, Nam also appears to be a Kronol addict. So that is why Curtis has been like gathering all of this Kronol to Mm. try and use it as like kind of an incentive (laughs) for Nam Mm -hmm. to do all of this job. Mm -hmm. Um which he ultimately agrees to do, but only if they wake up this other woman who is put into a, like a weird shelf next to him or a drawer next to him. And it's this very young girl named Yona. Um, and at the time I was like, is this his girlfriend? Um, but what we ultimately learn gratefully is that no, that's his daughter. (laughs) So I'm, I'm very much happier about that. So Both of these people decide to join the tail sectioners in their press toward the front. Um, So now we go through a few different compartments of them kind of moving closer and closer to the front, um, but not really encountering much resistance, um, which is great. Um, But what we do learn... Just before they break through this one section, uh, it appears that Yona is like clairvoyant or can tell the future because before, I don't think it happens every time, but it does happen at least a couple times before they're set to break through another door and get into a new section of the train. Yona will say something like, that guy's going to be running, and then the door opens and there's a guy running right toward them or something like that. So and but again, sometimes these things are really frustrating in science fiction movies. That never really gets elaborated upon. Yeah.
1: Like she, is maybe clairvoyance she's, a thing. Maybe she's just have? maybe is, she just has intuition.
0: <laughs> and also like to me, in light of what you're doing, I would assume danger is behind every new door that, is, that you open. Well, so
1: So she's not as <laughs> powerful as we think maybe she just likes to say hey you know this feels like something shit's gonna go down do we want to do this yeah basically (laughs) she's just just saying like think it over kind of sucks guys um uh
0: so she warns there's gonna be problems and then we open the gate and what we find is this entire compartment full of police or soldiers it's not i don't know what is the appropriate term for these people um but the whole place is chock-a-block full of enforcers and they've got masks on and they've got um i think they're like axes is what they have
1: yeah um
0: and uh so they so first They're all standing there. So, like, it's a face-off between the enforcers on the one side and the tail sectioners on the other. And then the enforcers are, like, taking their axes and, like, counting down. um, And, like, wait. And they're, like, ten, nine, eight, seven, six. And this is the new year part of the movie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And so what this means, I realized, is that um, it is the 1st of July. At six AM, I think that's what we understand.
1: Oh, because that means the new year now is July first, because of ice age.
0: I think. Oh, interesting. Not totally sure about that. Hmm, Interesting. Um, But because it can, so this is the other thing that will be mentioned later. Um, It can. This movie can only be taking place either in January or July of twenty thirty one. Um, and we'll, I'll explain why that's the case later. Um, so what, and then basically someone shouts out that th- it, this is now year 18 on the train because we've just hit the new year and that, and I, and though they don't make this totally clear, um, basically it's like one rotation of the earth. The train has gone one like one loop around the whole earth. Oh wow! In that time, and that means yeah.
1: that all the kids. I mean, I guess we may we. I guess we already knew this, but just thinking about it as strange. All the kids on this train have only ever lived on this train.
0: Right. Anyone under the age of eighteen has been That's born crazy. on the train. Yeah. Um, and then this is also like this is where the cool like um, visual effects are because um, they have to actually stop the fighting. Um, because the conductor man calls out like brace for impact basically, um, because they're in this part of the kind of rail that regularly seems to get like ice flows Uh going over it, and the train has to like bash through them, yeah. Um, and I think it does that like maybe two or three times. Um, and it, I have to say, like that was a cool visual effect, yeah, it looked cool. Um, And as soon as that's over, like, it's like everyone gets back up and it's like, okay, now we're going to go back to fighting. Um, And by now, Mason has arrived at this kerfuffle. And she tells the the tail sectioners that, quote, precisely 74% of them will die now as a result of this insurrection that they've been a part of. And they, up until this point, they had been kind of doing at least as well as the, like, enforcer types in the fight that they were having. Um, But then the train goes into a long tunnel, and all the soldiers have night vision goggles, but of course the tail sectioners don't. So then they get their asses handed to them. Um, This is, like, probably, I would say, maybe the most violent part of the movie. Yeah. Um, This is a really long kind of series of different fight scenes Mm -hmm. happening. Um, And if you're into that, I will say, I think that is one of Bong Joon-ho's things Mm -hmm. is like really capturing um, like action and fighting Mm -hmm. scenes Mm -hmm. really well. Um, What ultimately kind of the fruition of this scene is that Curtis takes this Mason woman hostage And she then tells him that in exchange uh, for her life, which is to say, rather than killing her, she's like, I will help you get to the front of the train. Um, And he's like, why should I believe you? And she's like, because I want to live. So she's like this, like really, she's probably the most of all, and we're going to see some really repugnant people come along, but she's to me like the grossest of all of these characters, because she's like, um, I'm gonna peddle this bullshit about the eternal train, and, like, everyone has their role, but at the end of the day, I'm not loyal to anyone as long as I'm still alive, kind of thing, um, so not my fave, personally, um, so, but that deal is, in fact, struck between Curtis and Mason, um, and they and they basically kind of like stop at this point in their onslaught um I'm not sure that if they're halfway through the train or not, but it's like night comes, this clash has really worn people out um so that night, Curtis is talking with Gilliam, who has come up to this like he's made his way from the back into this area where everyone's kind of resting. And Gilliam talks to Curtis and is already kind of saying like, you know, you made a big stand, you've made a big point, maybe we should call it quits, Um, particularly because so many people died in that like recent clash, right? Like a lot of people died and so maybe it's best to just kind of find a way out of this now. Um, and Curtis is not interested in that particular approach. He thinks that, um, they need to keep pressing forward, that this is kind of the farthest any revolt has ever gotten. Um, and he's still really committed to killing Wilford, so he, he will not be kind of turned off from that mission. Um, so then Gilliam changes tack a bit and is like, well, have you thought more about how you're going to eventually be in charge of people in the tail section. And Curtis is still very uninterested or unprepared for that to happen. Um, The following day, uh, it's decided, and this is like in a nod to what Gilliam said, it's decided that only a small group of tail sectioners are going to press forward um, in, in the remaining kind of effort to get to the front. And so that's Curtis and Tanya, um, Yona, Nam, and then like a handful of other people are selected to keep going forward. Mm-hmm. Of course, this Mason woman is also with them because she's offering like her skills to get there. Um, so then they go through a... So now they're getting into like the fancy part of yep. the train. Um, and so one of the more impressive ones to me anyway was the aquarium car that they go through um so it's like the they've got this big like aquarium tank arranged such that you can like walk through an archway and you're like walking out of the water I know that uh, actual aquariums have these like hallways in like under the water so you can see all of what's happening Um, And so, unsurprisingly, in the aquarium car is also where you can get sushi made for you. I liked that. Um, I did too. And so this is what I mean by saying, like, this movie can only be taking place in January or July because Mason explains to them that sushi is only available in the months of July and January on the train. Um, And this is part of, like, a pretty kind of, I would say, heavy-handed metaphor um about uh the balance on the train and how they're and everything is in balance it's a closed system and so that is why even though technically they have fish all year long you can only have sushi in certain parts of the year um so new year's eve can only be happening in january or july that's, that's all I know in terms of the timing. Um, so next as they are moving through, oh, this is also when like Curtis forces Mason to eat a protein block while they eat sushi to just like, you know, turn tables on her a little bit. Um, and then they continue to move forward and they arrive at this classroom. Uh, which is designed for the children of the people at the front of the train. Um, and I don't know about you, but this scene was like, to me, probably the creepiest.
1: The kid, the, the school children one or the. Yeah. Yeah. It was creepy.
0: I just, I, I something about this was like real yuck. Um and maybe it was the so Allison Pill mm-hmm. plays the teacher. Mm-hmm. Um and she does a great job yeah, I in a her. small role. Um but she's real creepy. Um and so they enter this classroom and it's like utter chaos as I guess any elementary age classroom <laughs> of kids would be. Shout out um, to all the teachers. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um and so they arrive there and Tanya and Andrew who are the people whose kids were taken all the way at the beginning, um, ask these kids, like, did you see our kids come through here? And this one little boy says, yes, Um, they went through there, but nobody seems to know, like, why they were taken or what they were taken to do. And I was really concerned that what they were taken for was some kind of sexual assault or molestation.
1: Oh. Um. And I didn't, I wasn't even like, I didn't even really, I couldn't even venture a guess, to be honest. I was just like, I was real worried that it was
0: going to be some kind of like that. Cause, cause Mason says at one point, Wilford really likes kids, but no one seems to know why. Mm. And so I was like, Oh no, this is terrible. Weirdly, what the reveal of what happens to these kids is somehow
1: Worse, yeah, than that? it's like um, better which but is worse, real bad. It's like <laughs> yeah. it's like not as it's not as perverse per se, but it's right. just as dehumanizing.
0: Indeed. Um, so so obviously the parents are concerned. Um, we then see the teacher showing the kids in the classroom this video about the history of the train. Um, which is why we know that it was designed to kind of uh, travel the entire uh, surface of the earth um, and that it was designed as this luxury liner. Um, But we also see, because they always pass this same, they pass the same areas every time, like every year they pass the same geographic features. And so the teacher draws their attention to these weird like um, kind of outcroppings on the top of a mountain. And it turns out that these, this is snow and ice that has collected around the bodies of seven people who had, who at that point emerged from the train, left the train 15 years before Mm -hmm. as like a protest, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, but of course it was so cold when they left the train, they died like in the midst of walking, which is like rough. Um, and the teacher basically uses that as a way to say, like, we never leave the train. And to leave the train is utter stupidity um, and folly. Uh, now, it seems like all of this is actually just an elaborate kind of distraction because then these like big carts of eggs get carried through um it look and they're hard-boiled eggs mm-hmm. and it's apparently a tradition on the train to get a new year's egg which i'm like <laughs> what no i don't like that it. yeah um but this is all just a smoke screen because then out from underneath the eggs come these massive guns <laughs> <laughs> and the teacher even has one yeah um And it's like, and she, I didn't mention this before, but she's pregnant. Not really sure what that's about. Um, And so you see this pregnant woman reach out a gun and just start spraying at people. I think it's just Um, supposed to be
1: another added layer of like, we think she's real sweet. And then all of a sudden it's like.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, But it's, I mean, she gets her just desserts. So she kills a bunch of people. And then I forget who throws some kind of sharp object, but, like, she gets it right in the throat.
1: Yeah, she dies.
0: Um, So she drops dead immediately. Um, and in this exchange, Gilliam is also killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and they see video footage of this. And so then Tanya turns to Curtis and is like, you are our leader. Like, you can't back out from it now. Like, it's official um, and he seems like kind of resigned to that, but he doesn't like it. And then, because he's so upset about the fact that it turns out bullets weren't gone from the train. Yeah. He's so angry about that, that he ends up, uh, doesn't he shoot Mason like right in the head? Yeah, or he does. Um, so he does that and then his only remark is, we go forward. Woof. Like, woof. Okay. (laughs) Um, So we finally kind of get to uh, the kind of climax of the movie. Um, We go through a car that looks like it's all a bunch of sauna rooms or something. Um, And now there's like also this assassin who's been following this group of tail sectioners the whole time, trying to kill them. And in the sauna room is when he really catches up to them and manages to kill most everyone in this group except for Nam, Yona, and Curtis. Um, And I also was going to ask you, did you notice in this scene, I thought where, hold on, where are my handwritten notes? Um, Where is it? Oh, yeah. Um, So as the tail sectioners start to die and the assassin really starts focusing on Nam and Curtis did you notice that in the background is that
1: song from The Shining playing no I didn't notice that yeah it's that
0: one that's like midnight um I did not yeah that's I I was like huh I wonder if Bong Joon-ho is a uh I bet that's
1: Kubrick I bet (laughs) because yeah that Uh, I think I could see, I can see similarities in style between them. So I could see that being true.
0: And there was something about the light in that particular room that did look, there was an element and it wasn't just the song itself, but like the song to me was like, Oh shit, this does kind of remind me of some shots from the shining. Um, So sadly, this is when Tanya dies Um, And there's a very kind of uh, good acting moment for Octavia Spencer in that. Um, Then they keep pushing through. They go through this, like, honestly, I like clubs. I always have. I probably always will, even though I don't go to them really much at all now that I'm old. Um, But Club on a Train looked way too crowded.
1: Yeah. I
0: don't like that no I know clubs can get crowded like that but I feel like on a train it's like just even more asking for like I'm not even dancing I'm more just like banging up against (laughs) other people and that's Mm -hmm. like making my body move Mm -hmm. (laughs) in some way Uh, so they go through that like I will say the level of luxury that is happening at the front of the train is so incredible compared to what is happening at the back of the train, mm-hmm. which is the point, but it's like wow, really shocking. Um, so we finally um, arrive at the front end of the train, which is like so. There's the engine room, which is just after the club, um, and it's got like kind <laughs> of like the you do the engine fire. room, the club, you know. Well, it makes sense because the club is loud and the engine room is really loud. So if you want to like kind of. Put your sleeping quarters, like if you want to arrange stuff so that like where it needs to be quiet, Mm -hmm. you're going to have a better possibility of that. It's like Mm -hmm. put the club where it's going to be loud anyway. Yeah, true. Next to the loudest room on the whole thing, which is the engine room. True. Um, So they're in the engine room and like Wilford's special like living compartment is is the real first car of the train. So they're in the second car of the train. Um, and this is where Curtis is asking Nam. He's like, okay, we finally made it here. Um, so now open the final kind of doorway so that I can get to Wolford and kill, kill him. And Nam is like, first of all, I want the drugs you promised me. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and Curtis is like, okay, fine. Here are these drugs. So he gives him the chrono. And somehow, I mean, Nam and Curtis have not gotten along this whole time. Yeah, they've been kind of like uh, not enemies, oh, but did, like. Oh, and did you?
1: I may have missed if you mentioned it, but they did have a thing. Um, so the character Nam speaks not English a lot of times, most right. of the time, I guess. Um, yeah, and he, he's speaking Korean. Yeah, um, and there's not. I guess there are subtitles, but what the, he also has is this little circular device where he speaks into it and it translates what he says into English.
0: Right. And I get why they had that, but I wish they had had subtitles every time he spoke because the translator would sometimes start translating as he was still speaking. And also sometimes it said, like,
1: can't translate. It said, I mean, it said some stuff. Right. Yeah, I do wish that they had had subtitles too. And because also I thought the actual sound of the translated stuff was sometimes a little bit low
0: yeah so for whatever reason nam and curtis have never really gotten along and what nam reveals at this time is that he wants to use all this cronol he has collected not to blow into wilford's compartment the way curtis believes this is supposed to go but rather he wants this, He and it, he reveals, then he has this like massive amount of cronol. And what he wants to do is use it to blow open the side door of the compartment to get outside of the train entirely. And he explains that the reason he wants to do this is because there's this like one specific point on their yearly route that he's been looking at for years and years and he said the first time we passed it all you could see it was like where a plane had crashed in the mountains and he's like at first all you could see was a little bit of the plane's tail but every year as we've passed the same point i see a little bit more of the plane which means that the snow is melting which means that things are getting better which means that perhaps we actually could survive out of the train we don't have to listen to these people who keep saying that to leave the train is to kind of basically commit suicide but curtis does not believe that um curtis for all of his hatred of Wilford and the kind of setup that the train society has, he cannot think outside that box. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, can't believe in the train. And you kind of are betraying me because you led me to believe that what we were doing was, and now you want to like do this other thing. Um, So then they fight with each other a bit. Um, But they eventually kind of settle down. And they sit across from each other and Curtis then reveals why he wants to kill Wilford. Um, and it's dark. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what he says?
1: No. Oh yeah. Um, wait, no, I'm actually not sure what he says. Oh, okay. oh, 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 uh, oh! He does. He talks about oh, gross. Wait, is this this is when he talks about the cannibalism stuff? Yes. Yeah, but I can't remember. I do remember him saying. I can't remember him saying why he wants to kill Wilford, but I do remember him saying where well, he's upset about the cannibalism that has gone on while they've been there. Right. And that right. he he hates that he knows what. Uh, humans taste like and and the grossest part was he said I hate that I know that the babies taste the best correct (laughs) so my guess so I guess I wasn't I maybe didn't put this all together but he wants to kill him because he's pissed that he had he this has been like their life and that he that he's experienced this at all and he blames him right
0: Right. So, yes, um, the story that Curtis tells is truly terrifying. Um, Basically, and again, this is how we kind of sort of know, like, a little bit about the time frame of, like, CW7 goes up into the atmosphere and then something happens. Because um, Curtis is like, it's just this kind of free-for-all to get onto the train, chaos confusion as you would expect um and so finally once everyone is kind of like in the train uh and he also says that like anything kind of of use or value uh was taken from the people who got onto the tail section um and so then the people who were left there were left for a month without food and water um and that I mean, I'm not sure exactly when things switch, but as a result of the desperation that happens in that first month, people do start eating each other. Um, And specifically, uh, what then starts to happen is uh, people in the train, rather than kind of letting cannibalism go full out of control people start amputating parts of their bodies to feed people.
1: Um,
0: And, in fact, Gilliam uh, curses like That's why he has no leg.
1: I didn't really put all that together either. Ooh, gross.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, So that's how he became the leader of the tail section is he gave up two different limbs of his to be eaten. And then, ultimately, after about two months of this situation, the protein bars show up. Um, so Curtis, who we learn, um, got on the train when he was about 17 years old, uh, has been living with this until now he's 34, I guess, is because it's 17 years after that. Um, and so for these initial months, he blames Wilford, prob- and I think Rightfully, Rightfully, so, so yeah. <laughs> um, and so that, and so he's been carrying this with him this whole time, yep. Um, this re- these various reveals happen. And then just when you think like maybe everything could turn out sort of okay, the lady who had come to the back with the measuring tape to take the kids comes from out of Wilford's compartment shoots Nam and then turns to Curtis as though nothing has happened and says, "Wilfred wants to invite you to dinner. So like come into dinner, um, which happens. So Curtis then comes into this compartment and this is where Ed Harris is revealed to be Wilford. Um, and Wilford clearly, as you would expect of any kind of cult leader, um, is really pretty impressed with the work he's done. Um, he's pretty impressed with himself (laughs) and like being like, why doesn't, why don't people give me more credit for how good I've done? (laughs) Um, but basically he's saying to Curtis, like, uh, there are difficulties here at the front of the train as well. Uh, and Curtis says that's always what the haves say to the have nots. Um, And Wilford really believes in all the stuff that Mason was saying before, that everyone has a place and a role on the train. Everyone has a preordained position because the train is a closed ecosystem and needs to be kind of balanced to be sustainable. And what Wilford reveals then is that all of the various revolts that have been referenced at various times they've mentioned previous insurrections and revolts of different people. Wilfred then reveals that that has always been planned um, because the train can probably only really have so many people on it at any time. Um, and he also reveals to Curtis's true disgust and kind of incredulity that Wilford and Gilliam had actually been working together the whole time. Um, That they had worked together to maintain the balance between all of the different groups of people on the train. And that's why when Mason said precisely 74% of you will die, that was because Wilford said, "We we must get rid of this many people so that things can keep humming along. Um, And, of course, Curtis doesn't really want to believe this, um, but that is what has been happening. Um, Now, in the final kind of moments of the movie, we're jumping back and forth between Wilfred's compartment and various other characters making their way through to the engine room Um, and having various conflicts. But when we return to Wilfred's compartment for basically the last time, uh, we see that Wilfred has taken a shine to Curtis. And specifically, he's like, I kind of want to now no longer be in charge. Um, I'm getting old, blah, blah, blah. And I have decided that you... Are going to be the new leader of the train and keep it going. Um, to Curtis's disgust, he does not have any interest in that role whatsoever because he's hated the leader this whole time. So he doesn't want to become the leader now, particularly now that he like he thought what was wrong was disgusting already, and now he's been revealed this even new level of how disgusting it is um so he really wants no part in it um while this is going on out in the engine room nam has kind of recovered from his gunshot wound yona has made it to the front and he he tells her put the chronal onto the gate to outside we need to get out that's what we've got to do Mm -hmm. um So she does that. She then comes in to find Curtis because much earlier in the movie, Curtis has been given the final, like, matches that exist on this train.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, So she's like, I need that match so I can light this bomb. And he's like, what are you talking about? Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in the same, but ultimately he does give her the match because He realizes that what is happening on this train is truly terrifying. Yeah. Because one of the main myths that he, though he's hated Wilfred and though he's hated everything about the way the train is organized, one of the things that he has also found himself believing is that the train is self-sustaining and so that it will always run, it will always go blah, 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 blah. But what Wilford reveals is that the reason he has been taking these kids is because the train isn't self-sustaining and that various parts of the engine have already started to break down. And what he has been using these children to do is to f- like, make fixes in places where parts have broken that can't be replaced.
1: Right, and that only a child's a specific size can fit into those areas and mimic the motions of the mechanism. Right.
0: Right. And so then we see this reveal where underneath Wilford's beautiful wooden floor, a panel is lifted and little Timmy is down in these like machine parts using just his bare hand. And it looks like he's like scooping some sort of goo from like one area and then dropping it in another area. Um, and it's really depressing, unsurprisingly. Um, and that's why, like, before, it's like, I'm glad he's not being molested by Wilford, but this is
1: This is also disgusting. not good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This, this is, is traumatic, traumatic in, in a way, different way. In a way I didn't even expect to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um. So this kind of, I think, confirms to Curtis that no amount of kind of revolution within the train is going to be enough, I guess. Um, And so he then kind of scoops Timmy out of this weird underneath space. He gives Yona the match. um, And so Yona is then able to like get back to the Kronal. And in the process of that, uh, kind of has an opportunity to look meaningfully at her father, Nam. Um, Curtis pulls Timmy out. And they, so it's like Timmy, Curtis, Yona, and Nam are now kind of the only people left of the original group. Uh, they're standing in the engine room. Yona lights the um, fuse in the cronol and the train fucking explodes. Like, it's, like, big explosion. Unsurprisingly, the explosion causes an avalanche. Um, so we get some good shots of people in these very fancy rooms looking out their beautiful windows as an avalanche is, like, coming at their faces. Yeah,
1: not good. Um
0: I would be terrified.
1: Yeah, not, not <laughs> I mean, so good. I terrified. Because they also, like, the outside that they show, when they do show the outside, I do like some of the visuals of, like, the frozen earth. But a lot of where they're traveling looks like they're, like, literally on a, a track that's on a cliff. Um, yeah. So. They're way
0: high up. Yeah. A lot of the time. So it is very terrifying. Um, so the avalanche and explosion, the thing that I thought was really interesting is so we get a real window onto kind of the thought patterns of this Wilford guy and how like what he thinks he's doing and what he thinks like life should be about. Um, but as we see these final seconds, like shots around the train, when he realizes the explosion his only reaction is an incredibly non-emotional very dry nice like he's (laughs) excited like he's like good
1: yeah i mean i (laughs) kind of get it like it's been a sort of like he's just
0: he's just kind of prepared for whatever which is kind of a wild thing to think about yeah So, again, I think this is, like, some of the special effects that got this movie a lot of buzz because we see a really spectacular, it's, like, explosion, avalanche, trains, like, coming off the big high tracks, falling down into a crevasse, like, real, I mean, you look at it and you're like, everyone died. Yeah, of course. Everyone dead. No more humanity. Yep.
1: (laughs) (laughs) D-E-A-D,
0: dead. But what we ultimately see in the final moments is that Yona and Timmy have indeed survived this situation um and they are able to walk outside into the snow and then they see a polar bear and that is it (laughs) the movie is over
1: yeah it doesn't It's like, I suppose that's like a, like a semi uplifting note that they're not dead. And I guess maybe we're to believe that the existence of a polar bear, um, means, you know, life can be sustained now, even though it's an Arctic type of animal. Um, and with the current, like, you know, with global warming, it is. Um, I feel happy for the polar bears if that was the case, but, um, I know
0: I was trying to remember when those shots of like a really skinny polar bear became
1: like world news. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sad. The polar bears have been suffering for a long time. So I like, this would be great if this was like a comeback of polar bears, but it's still an ominous ending because. They're in the middle of nowhere and, you know, ostensibly the only survivors of humanity. So how right. do they and how do you reconcile like they can't with the two of them repopulate the earth, you know? like No,
0: no. Well, that's the whole thing is I think if they are, in fact, the only survivors of this wreck, mm-hmm. what the movie is telling us is that
1: they're going to live survive. with that polar bear
0: No, like <laughs> Earth will survive but humanity will not. Yeah. You know, like that Earth predates us yep. and will continue on without us if and when we immolate ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with our own shittiness yeah. basically. Yeah. Um so not, happy new if, year. Woo. Yeah! <laughs> Ching ching! Glasses <laughs> crashing together. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's Bong joon ho's intended message, but it might be. <laughs> um and and I think let's say in a trying to get a more positive read on that, I would say, is something like recognizing that we as human beings are not the most important life form on this planet, um, I mean, there are ways that we are in the, in the sense of how we impact the planet, um, but the, but that we are not the only ones here, um, that in fact, uh, we might be kind of the most, uh, what's the word, vulnerable because of our own actions, um, and so that we should, then maybe a certain amount of humility, is important. Um, and there was definitely like, uh, some very kind of survival of the fittest eugenics, um, messages incorporated, particularly into a lot of what Wilford was saying at the end, um, which is all just going back to kind of the hubris of human beings, which is like, we can control things and we can do this and we're not like other life on this planet, right? Like even the very idea of the train itself was like the rest of life can be extinct, but but we we will survive, Yeah, yeah. you know? um, Which is something really kind of uniquely human. I think about us Um, and we're, and worthy of at least thinking a little bit more about if not like a lot of bit more, look, I'm, (laughs) I'm not like saying like, I'll be the first human to sacrifice so that because we're a cancer on the earth, I'm like, not like to that level of extreme (laughs) environmentalism. Um, but I do think it's important to maybe like occasionally decenter human beings from kind of the narrative about environmentalism or like all the, Mm -hmm. the role that the, anyway, so I, I appreciate that element of this story. Um, and that's it. Yep. That's, that's where we is. end up. That is what it is. Um, so let us do now yawns and eye rolls. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of yawns, one yawn being like, I was totally enthralled by this. Um, and 10 yawns being like, I just really couldn't get into
1: it. Yep. I would say like, four only because it's a little long for me. So I do start to lose focus. Um, So it's a little over two hours. So it's a little bit on the long side for me. And um, just on some of the other movies um, that I liked a little bit more, I've given threes so that I'm just doing a little bit higher with a four.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think I would give it more like a two, but basically for the same reason. Like I was like surprisingly engaged for most of this movie um, because I kind of had, I realized I had no idea what it was about, even though I'd heard of it. Um, so that kind of, I was like, Oh, it's actually pretty good. And wow, this is, an, I, I'm an interested. And then, yeah, I think starting about 90 to a hundred minutes in, I was like, Whoa, okay. Like there's still quite a bit more. Yeah,
1: it's a little long for and me. And I'm
0: not sure I need, all of these things to continue to happen um but i was still pretty well into it yeah yeah anyway and those final bits um so yeah okay in terms of eye rolls one eye roll being like you know dystopian sci-fi future movie (laughs) like there's gonna be some stuff that's wild
1: Mm -hmm. um
0: or else there is no story
1: yeah (laughs) I mean, <laughs> fair movie, enough.
0: There doesn't need to be a movie. Um, and then 10 eye rolls is like, I really cannot believe that this is how things might end up only 17 years from now or whatever.
1: Mm. Well, I would like to give a 10 because I'd really like to think that it's this is absolutely impossible. But um, I would, I think I would put it more at like a square five. Like I would put it like you know, I'm not like totally on board with this, but I'm definitely not saying it could never happen because listen, 2020 happened and we probably didn't think that was going to happen. <laughs> so I never True. say never.
0: I would also give it a five and it's mainly because same as you, like the the possibility that human beings could be this terrible in the next 10 years seems very likely 100%. to me. hundred um, percent. The only thing that gives me more eye rolls is I'm like, but we won't have the technology for that kind of train. Yeah. <laughs> like that's the only yeah. thing that's holding me back. Yep. Um, so I also give it a five mainly because technologically speaking, we're not there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all. Um,
1: woof. Depressing. Woof. About our our hopes for humanity. Well, let's future hope that 2021 like, is better than 2031. So.
0: Yes. So that by the time we actually reach 2031, things are cool. Yeah. And good. We're all peachy. Yeah. And just like dancing uh, and partying on New Year's Eve, like we're supposed to be.
1: Yeah. For God's um, sakes.
0: Also, can you even believe that 2031 is a year that is going to happen Soon,
1: it's gross. It's pretty gross. I mean,
0: I just can't even accept it.
1: No, I'm not thinking about <laughs>
0: it's like, it. I just can't get there. Oh shit! And in 2031, I'll be 50. Oh Christ! Gross. I, don't, <laughs> I don't like. I got. We gotta stop. Yeah, we let's gotta stop. Let's right stop right now. over ahead.
1: Let's um, not depress well, everybody. Well, as
0: always, as always, Amy, it's been. Cool, uh, <laughs> not because of you, but because of the subject matter. I can't say great, yeah. This week. It's been I hear cool. you. Um, we do, though, wish everyone a very happy and well deserved and well earned 2021. Yes, um, we hope that you are thinking about getting that cool ass vaccine <laughs> whenever you can get it, um, so that our future doesn't become this. Um, <laughs> So, as always, uh, I'm Sarah and I'm here with Amy, and we will see you next week in Spain. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of See You Next Week in Space. This is a production by Amy and Sarah Walsh with artwork provided by Riley Brown. If you'd like to learn more about our show, please check us out at seeyounextweekinspace.com or follow us on Instagram at See You Next Week in Space. Until the next one.